In the heart of Washington, D.C. is a unique place for kids. It's called the Little Blue House. For 31 years, it's been the first love of its director, a man named Carl Foster. On the website of the Little Blue House, it says there is a single core mission to foster the vulnerable and at-risk children and youth in a safe, stable, and healthy environment. Carl Foster, a Vietnam veteran and a director of the Little Blue House, says for over 30 years, the LBH has provided whatever service was needed by our kids to give them a chance to become self-sufficient adults. Carl Foster, what is the Little Blue House? Uh, Little Blue House is part of the Border Baby Project. Uh, if you remember back in the late 80s when people were afraid of people with AIDS, we didn't know how it was transmitted, that sort of thing. Uh, some housewives in Montgomery County, the Garten House family, used to come down to D.C., go to the hospital, and hold what we used to call AIDS babies. Um, that made news. And Freddie Mac thought it would be a good idea to donate a facility to this project, which is why the parent organization is called Border Baby Project, for babies. And so they donated this house, which was then rehabbed as a residence for babies. Um, we used to call them AIDS babies, but they were babies born to drug-addicted mothers uh, who had various medical conditions. And that was basically the origin of it. Where is the Little Blue House in Washington? Um, it's about one block from Children's Hospital. It's, it's nicely located. We have Howard Hospital, like three minutes that way. Children's Hospital, one minute that way. Washington Hospital Center, two minutes that way. And what was good about that is most of the babies we had when we first opened this facility were sick. So having hospitals that close was really a good idea. Sp- Kind of describe what kind of a house is this? The house, um, ironically enough, was uh, when we as an organization got it, was a, was a crack house. I mean, people used to come here and shoot up. And when they donated it to us, it was just like a frame. I remember the first time I came here, the second floor was a bunch of two-by-fours I had to walk on with a hard hat kind of thing. Um, generosity of some companies... Uh, donated materials, construction workers donated work. Um, the first of three times we totally rehabbed the facility. But the idea was to turn it from uh, uh, a contributor to the drug problem to part of the solution of the drug problem. And the credit for that doesn't go to me. It goes to people who preceded me, like Lynn and Patty Gartenhouse, who put that together. How did you get involved? Oh, um... <clears throat> I was public affairs director at DC 101, and if you had a big project and you're trying to raise money, you wanted to be on my radio program. That's kind of what we did. You know, we did chili cook-off and world's largest volleyball tournament and all that sort of things. So, you know, I interviewed the, the, the uh, originators, because um, when you're on the original board, you're considered a founder, because I'm a founder. But uh, there were people who preceded me. Um, in in an effort to help raise the money, help raise attention, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then later when, in order to accept the donation of the house from Freddie Mac, they needed to form a 501c3. What's that mean? Um, that's the tax number for a nonprofit organization 
Um, there are all kinds of 501c3s, all kinds of 501c4s. There are advocacy groups that are 501c4s, political advocacy groups. But ours is the charity version of that, the 501c3, uh, where we ha- have a board of directors or private citizens who are board of trustees. And as it was outlined to me by our lawyers, when you say, yes, I'll be on this board, what you're really saying is, I'll be responsible for whatever this group does. If they screw something up, we get to sue you. How many years have you been involved? I'm going to say, because I was slightly involved before we formed the board, but the board formal incorporation was 1991. So you're talking 32, 31 years? Mm-hmm. What do you do what have you done over the years with this? It's, it's, there's a phrase called make a long story short. It's hard to make that long story really short. But basically, for the first six or seven years of it, I was a board member. I went to the meetings and other people were responsible for the day-to-day stuff. Then some things happened. The originators left. Um, and we were going to basically close the place down. Except... When I came here and I saw our staff, uh, there were all the little old black ladies that I grew up with in my church who used to come to church every Sunday and talk about how mean their bosses were. And I felt like, okay, I've become the mean boss. I'm about to unemploy these ladies. For good reasons, the organization had some structural issues, some financial issues, all of which needed to be fixed or reworked, yada, yada, yada. And uh, as a group of private citizens, we were kind of, okay, we did a good deed, we helped some kids out, you know, let's move the project on, maybe donate some material to somebody else and go back to our lives. We're a bunch of lawyers and radio announcers and other stuff. But I couldn't let the old ladies go. I couldn't. Um, And the more I talked to them, I saw how attached they were emotionally to the children we were trying to help and how important this place had become. Plus, most of the people we hired lived in this neighborhood. There's a little old lady that lives across the alley that still lives across the alley. It's the first person we hired. Another woman lived down the street. Another one lived a block over. And it was a real neighborhood undertaking. It helped us get an exemption to put what is, in essence, a business in the middle of a, a, a residential neighborhood that we had all of these residents who lived around here who worked here. Because this is radio, I want to go back to a description of the house. If somebody came to this neighborhood, what would they see here? Now or then? Right now. Oh, it's... I mean, how big, how big is this? In the, how many bedrooms in the place? That kind of thing. It's literally a blue house. It's three levels. We are sitting in the, the basement part of it. Uh, the room we're in right now for years served as my office. I don't need an office anymore. Um, um, it's literally a blue house. Uh, as I told you, the, the reason the story is so hard to tell is because every part of it has a story. We have the only white picket fence on this street. And the story of that fence is there was a child here who was one of 12 children of a mother who was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And they removed her children and they wanted to send one of them back to see if mom had gotten her act together, which is just nuts. And they chose the one that lived in this house. 
And I said, no. I threw a hissy fit. I almost got arrested at some administrator's office and he said, no, you can't take this child. They took the child. It was a Thursday afternoon at three o'clock. I got so mad, I drove from that office to Home Depot and bought a bunch of wood and built that white picket fence, which is today still in front of that house. That was my reminder that they moved Nick. Nicholas, the kid's name was Nicholas. I won't give his last name. They moved that kid out of his house. And every day I get up and I go see that fence, and I remember this poor little kid that they took and gave back to a mother who was still on drugs, still abusive, yada, 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 yada. Like I said, every part of this has a story. Tell me if I'm wrong. This is about two miles from the Capitol. Yes. It's a row house. Yes. On a street that's full of row houses. Yes. Your main objective for maintaining this house for the last 31 years, what's the purpose? It changes over time. At first, we were just a home to abandoned infants, which, again, is a huge story. But after um, the, the, when I became the director of it, when, when uh, others were leaving, we were going to close the place down, and I said, let's run it. They said, we can't afford to hire an executive director. I said, I'll do it until we can have enough money. That was over 25 years ago. Shortly after that, the city went through this phase where they were closing down group homes for kids. Had nothing to do with us. Uh, we were the best of the best that they had. There was a point at which when the foster care system was under receivership, the city wanted to get it back. And one of the things the city had not been doing when they didn't have control of the foster care system was licensing group homes. So they had to come up with a licensing process. They let, developed let, it. Let me, no, 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 let me, let me. No, I just want to, like, I, I, want, I want to ask you just one quick question. Answer. What does it mean to be a group home? It's what the, the, the technical term, uh, the term of art is congregate care, like more kids living in a congregation. And what was special about the little house is technically we were congregate care. We had like six kids living here at a time. Technically that was congregate care. But here's the difference. Here's the, the point I was trying to make. When the city had to come up with a system by which to relicense group homes, and they went and inspected all the group homes, the only one that passed the inspection was us. I talked to a deputy director when we worked with older kids about how many kids the city had in special education. The only organization that could truthfully say none of our kids are in special education were the ones that were in this house. There are things that we did that nobody else did. We were the first organization nonprofit social service organization in D.C. to have a website. I went to a, a, a group meeting with other executive directors. Now, these are people who are paid to do this. I'm the part-time director who's a radio announcer, right? And I was telling them, oh, you guys got to put up a website. Everything's going to switch to emails. We're not going to do phone calls and that sort of thing. They're like, oh, the kid's crazy. Don't talk to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. The LittleBlueHouse.org Little is the first website for nonprofit organizations. But more to your question. We started out working with babies. We went from that to foster care, to emergency removals of kids who were abused, neglected, that sort of thing. Then we uh, became a licensed mental health facility, a licensed adoption agency. All of those are things that I had to learn how to do. 
as the as as the the radio announcer, I didn't know squat about how to do it a licensing, become an adoption agency. But hired the right consultants, we figured it out, we got the license. <clears throat> For seven years, we ran a summer feeding, uh, and this is when you and I started talking about Little Blouse. We worked with, with elementary school kids and middle school kids having a, 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 a summer camp with a officially licensed city summer feeding program, uh, a Medicaid provider sort of thing. Uh, um, and we started working with whole families in this community. Very different from where we started with, with infants. Give me one story of a child that you started with. How did you find the child? <clears throat> and how much have you done? Just one, and we can talk about others, but give, give us an example. I think the best example of that is Ashley. And anyone who wants to meet Ashley can go to our website, littlebullhouse.org. And Ashley's interviewing Marva Cash. She's our first employee with being interviewed by what is now a young adult, Ashley, who came to us as an infant. Ashley was one of three children removed from her mother because of physical abuse. And she had an older brother who was three and a sister who was two who have subsequently been adopted by another family. But the reason why Ashley's story is, is so important is she came to us as a nine-month-old infant and we have been her social service agency for her and her family for her entire life and just this year, she graduated from uh, Trinity Washington University. And we have worked with her from infant to college graduate at every stage. There was a point at which it, there isn't anything she needed we didn't provide for her. She went to kindergarten from here when she lived here as a resident. And imagine that. She came as an infant and lived here until she started school. And she actually started school from here uh, 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 as, as her official residence. What's the relationship of Ashley and her mother or father today? <clears throat> her, she had a very complicated, long process of getting her from abandoned child or foster child removal to her dad because her dad wasn't documented at the time. Um, so we helped him get citizenship so that he could adopt his child. Um, the biological mom, uh, um, while Ashley and her two siblings lived here, mom had two more kids <laughs> and was just in and out of the system, in and out of the system, and feared that they were coming for her, so she moved to Fairfax, where she had another kid. And Fairfax, their system more efficient than DC's, eventually deported her. Back um, to Mexico. And I know this for a fact because she has contacted me from Mexico looking for her kids, all of whom are American citizens are still in this country. Um, so when this place was the most active, and I know you've changed the status of it in the last couple of years, but it would be full of how many children? As a resident, the most children we had living here were eight. As a, as a 
uh, uh, um, not covered abandoned infants and foster care, when we started doing non-residential programs like the summer day camp, the summer feeding program, uh, a licensed mental health provider, uh, a food camp stamp distributor, all that sort of stuff, we had like a vast uh, 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 client base because we weren't, they weren't living here. We had whole families. Um, and most of the kids that are, were, were ushering kids through college now, most of those kids were kids who came to us in elementary and middle school because we were working with their families. If our audience hasn't figured it out by now, they recognize your voice. Carl Foster is a 23-year veteran of C-SPAN radio. And you do that full-time plus the little blue house full-time. Yes. So why do you have that much on your plate every day? Um, If you want to do some good, the last question you can afford to ask is, how much does it pay? (laughs) Um, It sort of suited me. I, I... People have asked me over the years why I've spent so much of my time doing this, and I've never given anybody a real answer. I'll give you a real answer. Here's the real answer. When I graduated from high school in 1968, there was affirmative action. There were people marching in the street. There was the seated job program, which was created years later by Nixon. There were opportunities for me. Ten years later, my little brother, who was so much like me that my mother sent me a picture of him and I thought it was a picture of me, graduated from high school. Same high school. What what town? uh, In Hartford. You've been here. You've been to the Harriet Beecher Stowe House on Forest Street in Hartford. There are three buildings. The Mark Twain House, the Harriet Beecher Stowe House, and my high school. (laughs) Because I know you were there during the, the, the writer series. Anyway, 10 years later, those things weren't there. What was, for me and what I call the children of the dream, opportunities of college and higher education and changing our lives, had disappeared a decade later. Remnants of them were still there, but basically that. And my brother used to piss me off. Okay, he would get in a little petty trouble and stuff like that. But what really pissed me off is my mother would, I would hear from my mother that she had to take the bus to buy groceries. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? You can't take your mother to buy groceries? So I made him join the military, which had been so good to me. Went to college on the GI Bill. I grew up, learned things about myself, learned things about the world, could manage myself after I got out. Thought it would be the perfect thing for him, except... He died while in the military that I made him join. So, as big brothers go, I was a failure. What did he die of? Long story, not really important, but where he was, he wouldn't have been if I hadn't sent him. So, the first group of kids I worked with were a group of kids at Sasha Bruce Youth Work. Uh, uh, that I'm still connected to today. Uh, uh, James, Tony, Navarro, Napoleon, they were 11 or 12 years old in 1986 when I formed that group. 
uh, and we're st still attached. And this is an offshoot of that. We'll go back to your brother. Why did that have such an impact on you to get involved in this kind of work? Because I failed him. He had the right to expect his brother to come home and help him, but I didn't. I was off living my own life, doing the things that I thought I had the right to do. And I didn't go back home, and I didn't save him. So now, when I have the opportunity, that's what I do. I become the big brother. When did you serve in the military? 1969. How long? Oh, <laughs> I was in 69, about two and a half years. I extended to get some job training. I used to be a hospital x-ray technician, which I trained for in the Army. Um, um, from medic school to x-ray school. I was a field medic to uh, hospital x-ray technician, and that's my undergraduate degrees in uh, St. Louis University. I literally got out of the Army early 72, went back to Connecticut, and started visiting with my high school friends, and they were all miserable. The only ones who were happy were the ones who went to college, and were still in college. So I literally sat down and wrote an open letter to the Pentagon, not addressed to anyone, saying, are there universities or colleges that will let guys in who are veterans, who are not good students in high school. I literally did that. And they sent me a list. And St. Louis University was on that list. And that's how I happened to go to college. You got out of college what year? This is for all my fellow C-minus students. Education and intelligence are not the same thing. In high school, I was Mr. Popularity. I was president of the student body, for God's sake, and a solid C-minus student. But when I got to college and got serious, I graduated from that very fine, tough academic institution in three years. I graduated in 75. To Jesuit school? Yep which I didn't know was a Jesuit school until I got there. shows you how much I paid attention to details. And I got stories about me and the nuns that you could laugh at for the rest of your life. <laughs> Every time Joe Biden tells a story about his Catholic upbringing, I laugh and say, I got one better than that, Joe. <clears throat> I am so glad. I had so many friends who had stories about Catholic schools. I'm so glad I went to a Jesuit institution <laughs> so I could why? have stories of my own. Why? I mean, people talk about Jesuit education all the time. What's special about it? I certainly wouldn't have read as much philosophy as I did because you could swap out some. I wasn't not Catholic, so you could swap out some of those religion courses for philosophy. So I got to read Kant and Kierkegaard and, and, and more Plato and Socrates than you could shake a stick at. But I, I think it was just kind of the, the atmosphere. It was, oh, I was on the college radio station, <laughs> and we could play... Nielsen Schmielsen, which was filled with all kinds of bad words that you can't put on the radio because it was close. We could play that on my college station. 
But we couldn't play the Billy Joel song that said, Catholic girls start much too late. Oh, my God. We had um, uh, the hippie priest who lived in the dorm, who was who was a priest, who drank more than the rest of us and told more dirty jokes than the rest of us. Um <clears throat> My advisor, oh God, like I told you, I got all kinds of Catholic school stories. My advisor, Sister Hilda Brickus, uh, was a five foot, 250 pound black nun with a wooden leg. <laughs> I swear to God. And um, I didn't know she had a wooden leg. I just thought she waddled when she walked because she was so heavy. <laughs> So my roommate Danny said that she had a wooden leg, and I didn't believe her. And then one day, I was sitting in her office. It was like a, a, a spring day, and she had the window open because it was weather was really nice. And a piece of paper blew off her desk, and I was going to go get it. She goes, no, I'll get it, Carl. And she hopped up, and she walked over, and she bent over to get it. And I could see as her skirt came up to by her knee, I could see the latches where her knee clamped on. You know, the, 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 the real, the human, the bio part clamped on with the mechanical part. And me being me, I went, oh, my God, you do have a wooden leg. <laughs> She's like, yes, Carl, I've had one since I was eight years old. And she turned around and explained the whole story about how she lost her, her leg. I mean, you can only get those stories in Catholic school. I'm sorry. I mean. <clears throat> have you married in your life? No. Obviously, I'm not obviously, but have you your own children? No. If so, I was going to have children, I would have been married because I'm marrying foster's son. <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes with that. But so we go back to the <laughs> fact that you have been shepherding young folks for the last 31 years. Longer. Again, why the connection... And did you miss having your own children? Um, it isn't that I decided not to have children. Oh, my God. Um, how do I want to characterize this? I've had wonderful relationships with, with women without getting married. Um, um, and never thought of myself... Oh, my God. There are just so many stories I can tell you. Oh, my God. There's just, there's just so many stories. Um, I was able to do all the things I wanted to do without getting married. We'll just leave it at that. Well, what's your special attraction to young people and making their lives better? That part's not hard. Um, I've always believed you do what you can do. Um, it was always... The, the and I was always sort of gripped by how we fail kids systemically. The first group of kids that I worked with at in in mid eighties, these are all young boys who are in trouble with the law. I would describe them to people as if a group of them got on the bus with you, you'd get off and wait for another bus. But they're just kids. Uh, uh, show me a bad kid, and I'll show you somebody that you think is a bad kid, and I'll show you a kid that they don't know how to talk to. 
there have been so many teenagers that people have presented to me as somebody no one could reach, and I could just sit down and talk to them. And, you know, it was always something that I could do, and it was never hard for me. What did you find out usually about a kid that you were talking to? What was, what, if they were in trouble, why was, what was the reason? It was always the fault of the grown-ups that didn't invest in the kid. The first thing a teenager wants to know, and I don't care who the teenager is, is can I trust you? Will you be there for me? At one point, or as with the kids I worked with, my first group, their question was, at what point is he going to leave? Everybody quits them. And they were sure I was going to quit. So all I had to do was just keep showing up until they were convinced, okay, Carl's for real. He's not going anywhere. And, and when you know you are successful at working with kids is years later. When you think they've moved on and you've moved on and there will be a kid I knew in the 80s who come back to see me 25 years later and tell me what an influence I was on his life. That's when you know, you may, and, I, and I've learned to, to trust that. Because the thing that frustrated me the most in the first group of kids I worked with and with the kids I worked with here at Little Blue House is adults will get paid to work with them. <clears throat> when things don't work, they find a way to blame it on the kid. <clears throat> Let me give you this as an example to sort of, of what's wrong. <clears throat> I was sitting in this very room when a school counselor called me from an elementary school down the street and asked me if we had anger management classes for six-year-olds. And I said, anger management classes? I said, there's no such thing as a six-year-old with an anger management problem. I said, he might have a mommy problem, a daddy problem, a neighborhood problem, a school problem, but he doesn't have an anger management problem. To anger management socialization. We learn when it's okay to express our anger and we're not. And you can't do that with a six-year-old. Six-year-olds are responding to uh, having an impulsive response to stimulus in their environment. And I said, send him to me. He needs a friend. I literally said that. And we went up and we got the kid. Parallel to that, I was putting together a summer program and I gotten these three kids from Catholic University who spent their first summer with us, and they sent me a young woman for the second year to work with us. Bear with me now. <clears throat> and and I loved her, and I said, yes, you can come work, work for the summer. But she says, okay, now I have to tell my dad. A couple of weeks later, she calls me back and says, my dad will be in town this Friday, uh, and he wants to meet you. And I said, sure. So this is a young white girl from New York, <clears throat> Her dad's coming down here. I meet him. He's a New York City cop. And he gets in my face and he says, that's my baby girl. And her mother wants her home this summer. And she wants to stay here and work with the little blue house. What the hell is wrong with you? And I explained to him what we do and that sort of thing. And then he looks at me and he says, nothing better happen to my baby. And then he left. <clears throat> The very first day of that summer camp, that same young lady from New York is in the van that I'm driving with this kid who lived up the street to school 
counselor called me and said he had a, 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 a anger management problem. I drive the kid home. We stop in front of his house. We could drive by where he lived right now, and there'll be police cars. He lives on Columbia Road. There are police cars in front of that house right now. Every day I go by there, there are police cars sitting there. So I drive to this house with him sitting there and this young woman sitting in the back. As soon as I stop, put the car in park, put the handbrake on, and turn around to get the kids, police start running by in flat jackets with M16s, and they're all running into the building where this kid lives. And they run right by our van, some in front, some behind. And I look at this young college student from New York, and she's sitting in the back, and she's freaking out. And I look at the kids, and they're still playing patty cake. <laughs> it didn't phase them at all. And the kid who lives in that building reached over to me and says, we're going to get out? And I said, no, I'll drive the others home and bring you back later. So I drove all the other kids home, and this girl still sitting in the back of the van, <laughs> still picking up. We come back to this one kid, this the last kid we have to drop off, so we get out and we walk to his house. We park on the street. The police are, have moved to one side. There are a bunch of people in handcuffs leaning up against the car. Okay, Pulled out of the building where this kid lives. We walk into the basement of the building, and even though the police are still there, there's like four men in the back, in the hallway, shooting craps and drinking. We go up to the next floor, and I don't know what kind of drugs it was, but it washed over me. I could feel it saturating myself as I got to that next level. He lives on the third floor, so we round the, 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 the thing and start up on the third floor. And I, this one college student now, as I'm walking up, she has her hands in the back of my pants. She's totally freaked out, holding on to me as we're walking up to her. And these little kids walking up the stairs, smiling. He knocks on the door. His mother comes to the door to some guy on a couch over there. Mom's half naked. Oh, yeah, Mr. Foster, thanks for bringing him home. And snatched him in the house and closed the door. So I turned around with this one college student. We walked downstairs, walked through the drugs overcoming us. We get back into the van. I jokingly say, I always worry when I go into situations like this because if, if I run a red light and the police, I'll never convince the cops I wasn't smoking anything. We drive back here, and I looked at her, and before she said anything, she looked at me and said, Thank you for letting me work here this summer. Whatever you do, don't tell my father that story. <laughs> the next day, I called, it is summer, but the school counselors are still up at the school. I called elementary school up the street and I said, let me tell you what I found when I drove this little kid home yesterday. The kids you want anger management. I said, if this kid behaves, then I'll put him in therapy because something is wrong. But any kid who lives through this, it doesn't misbehave, that's him being normal. The only normal thing I saw was that kid. Everything else is broken. No one should be raised by a woman half high on a bed with some stranger while her kids are running around. No kid should have to walk through dope to get to the place where he lives or see men drinking and playing craps or have to sidestep police to get in the house where he lives. And you want to tell me something's wrong with the kid? 
And that was emblematic of everything I saw on every level with every kid I worked in. There was this environment or circumstance that was that, that was impinging on the child's opportunity to develop. And they want to put the kid in therapy. I've seen social workers make bad placements and bad foster homes. And their answer to that is put the kid in therapy. Ain't do anything wrong. How about you fix that? And everything I've seen in the whole 30 years is a division of that. Where the, uh, 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 I can't tell you how many times I've, uh, 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 they have what they call IEPs, Individual Education Plan meetings. They're mandated by federal government. If you're going to get money, if you're going to put a kid in special education, you have these meetings where all the parties are there. And I'll be sitting in there and they're saying like, oh, Brian can't behave. Oh, he doesn't follow the teacher. He does at the little blue house. Tell the teacher to pay attention to him. Maybe if he's misbehaving, there's something wrong. Oh, but we got to put him in special education. No, you don't need to put him in special education. Some of these kids we believe are genius IQ. Yeah. But of the circumstances they grew up in, we treat them like there's something wrong with them. That's insane. I seen over and if there was a theme to all of this, for me, pay attention to the child without your prejudices. When people come to work at the Little Blue House, <clears throat> they have to do a couple things. They have to watch the movie Blindside. They have to watch the movie Goodwill Hunting. They have to bring me a definition of the word inimitable and quintessential. Blindside. The reason they have to watch the word blindside is the point at which the teacher is walking down the hall with the mom who's taking Big Mike into her house. And the teacher says to him, Big Mike is smart. I just don't think we have the right education for him. And that's the question I want people to ask. If a child isn't doing well in school, don't say what's wrong with the child. Ask what's wrong with the school. The reason we watch Goodwill Hunting is the character in this movie, Will. <clears throat> uh, white Irish kid from Southie. What does he do? He does what other kids in Southie do. He gets drunk and he starts fights. Because that's what white kids do from Southie. That's, we can call it a stereotype, but that's what they do. What's lost in all of that is the fact that the kids are genius. And that's what I want people to know about our kids. They might run the street with the other kids. They might get involved in fights and, 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 and do some dope because that's what they grow up with. doesn't mean they're not a genius. That's what quintessential, inevitable, uh, quintessential. Uh, 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 I want them to consider the possibility that inside the image they see is a little kid who might be a genius. Let me get to the last couple of years. I've heard you say this out loud, that your number one goal after these kids had been here for all these years, to get them in college and to get them educated. Where are you in that effort? I bought the house. I own the house personally. Is there still an organization called the Little Blue House? Oh, yes. Yes. Is there yes, still yes, a yes. board of directors? Yep. Yep. You answer to the board. Yep. Okay. 
I bought the house, put my retirement money <laughs> into buying this house. To put that money in the bank, send those kids to college. There was um, a group of kids that we know that we met in elementary school. And we used to talk all the time, how do we change their lives? I used to tell people who work here, we're not interested in change. We're interested in transformation. We want to take a kid who might be generations of welfare and turn him into a kid who breaks that cycle. And the thing I would tell the kids all the time is, what I want for you is to have choices. You know, Not to do what you do because you can do it, but to take what's possible and compare it to other things that are possible and to choose what happens to you. So we took what I call the original six, William Jefferson, Carmen, Brianna, Anna, and... Um, Eric? I said Eric. Eric. <clears throat> right. Thank you. You thought of the one I had thought of. And we brought their moms together and said to them... <clears throat> We don't think your kids are on a college path. Let us change that. The kids were in fourth and fifth grade at the time. Um, Let's move them to a middle school, which has a history of sending kids on to better high schools and to college. And we did the the Chavez system. And four of those six moms said no. William and Jefferson's mom, oh my God, yes, thank you. Uh, um, but two of those moms said no. Why? <clears throat> One of them said no because this is the kind of stuff you deal with and you do this kind of work. One of them said no because the middle school we were going to send this 11-year-old, who, by the way, just graduated from college. I did that. But <clears throat> one of the moms... <laughs> who said, no, you can't put my child in this middle school or help prepare for college. It's because the middle school got out later in the day from the elementary school and mom wanted the older sister to go pick the siblings up and walk her home. To which I responded, you don't work. How about you get off your fat ass and go walk the kids home? And how we fixed that? I literally paid someone to go to that elementary school and walk those kids home so that the older child could go to the middle school. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that we did. When you're finished with this project, how many kids do you think will have gone to college? I put in 13. We'll see how many come out. And and um, COVID really messed up my plans. How? There were kids I really, really wanted to get out of those homes and struggled to get them on campus in a dorm and COVID sent them back. I could cry. Uh, There was one kid that we believe had a genius IQ and COVID sent her back home so I would call her every day are you doing okay I mean it was just just breaking my heart it was like I 
finally did something I thought was miraculous, could never happen, <laughs> and COVID undid it. So I called her up, and she goes, so I said, you keep it up with your studies? She goes, yeah, I just have to wait for the computer. What do you mean to wait for the computer? She goes, I have to let my brothers and sisters use my computer. Can you imagine? You're a college junior, and you can't do your homework because your little brothers is. So I bought her brothers and sisters a computer. So the girl could use I mean, that's the kind of stuff that we did. Under the umbrella of the little blue house. Yeah. Where does the, by the way, where, where's the money come from? Depends on when you ask me. Um, we had families, prominent families, that adopted children from here who were the difference in our summer program. Um, I always would tell the people who work for us, step one, decide what success is. You know, Before you get off the bench, what are we trying to do? And what's acceptable to us? And if you can't figure that part out, don't step off the bench. But we came up with a goal. We decided to do the summer programs. We, we, we had a goal. And so then we would get whatever money we could for the city, which was never half of what it cost, by the way. Never half of what it cost. And then, like, uh, we did a summer program that was eight hours, not four, was five days a week, not three, because we felt whatever good we could do in three days, the neighborhood could undo in less than two. And it didn't make sense for us to take a kid off the street from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. and then put him back on the street at 3 p.m. You know how much trouble they can get into? So we would keep them all day. And that cost us per summer about 60 grand. The most we ever got out of the city was 25. I think one year we got 28. And how many other people like you around the city are doing these kind of things? It's a interesting story, and, and here's my answer to that. Everybody that I know who's a contemporary of mine, who the kids I called children of the dream, like Dr. King's dream kind of thing, all of them have projects like that. They may not be as volume-wise the same as mine, Everybody's adopted something. Everybody's picked something up. Everybody's doing something. Everybody's contributing to something. Um, when I went to my 50-year high school reunion, I could count on one hand the number of people in my high school graduating class that didn't have something else going on the side to benefit other people. I think it's the kind of thing... I think we collectively felt we all needed to do something. And and for me personally, there were always... I want to tell you a story that you don't know, and I could do it quickly because I think it sums up what motivates me. Of all the years I've been here, in 2008 was the first summer camp that we did. And we literally went to Catholic University to a job fair and put out material, this is what we're doing, and had students sign up and come to work in one summer. 
the very first woman I met uh, was named Julia. Uh, I tell people she's Spanish as in she's from Spain as opposed to Central America, South America. <clears throat> very European. Very, 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 very pretty woman. She walks into the room, she sits down, she crosses her legs and said, Good morning, Mr. Foster. I looked around her to staff and said, We're going to hire her and give her all of our toughest boys, which we did. Within two days of summer camp, boys that you would think of as hardened street kids were going up to staff asking for (laughs) money to buy clean underwear, deodorant, hair care products. Here's why Julio is important to me. The financial crisis hits, and Julia's the only part of the Washington international scene that ever worked here. Her dad was a high official at the World Bank. So the financial crisis hit, and dad's getting job offers from all over the world. Okay, he's like one of the top bankers in the world. He gets a job, I can't, I'm not gonna tell you the country because I, I, I wanna protect their identity, but let's just say he, he's basically offered the job as Treasury Secretary of a major European country. And he has $3, all of whom were going to college here in the U.S. So he calls his daughters into the room. And I know this story because the mom is telling, her mother's telling me the story. And said to his daughters, <clears throat> mom and dad are moving to this country. We know you like it here in the U.S. We know you want to stay. But we're going. So for the summer of 2009, you could have whatever you want on dad. So the one daughter says, I want to spend the summer Central Prairie. Dad goes, done. I'm sending security with you, but you can go. The other one, I want to go to the Greek Isles. Done. I'm sending security with you, you can go. Julia chose to come back to the Little Blue House and work here for a second summer. And to this day, when Obama was president, we had all of these unaccompanied minors come across the border, and he was asking states to take them. Montgomery County said, we'll take X number. Julia, by then, had finished grad school and was a licensed counselor. (laughs) All those became her kids. To this day, Julia is still counseling our parents, helping me with these kids, working my way through that. So, when she was finishing up at Catholic and was going to go to grad school to the University of Maryland, she asked me to write her a letter of reference. I said, yeah, and here's my measuring stick. I'm going to write you a letter of reference that will make your mother cry. I'll write it, and if mom doesn't cry, send it back. I'll write it again until she does. So I wrote her... And I emailed it to her. It was it was funny because I was at at work. Um, I'm trying to remember which it was during one of the presidential debates that I emailed it, and I'm live on the air at C-SPAN, and she calls me, and I'm like, Julia, I can't talk. I'm on the air right now. Julia, I'll call you back. She goes, No, Carl, I don't need to talk. I just wanted to tell you, Mom's crying. <laughs> and I said, Okay, see you later. At that point, I want to tell the audience we don't normally interview. 
C-SPAN employees about their lives. And the reason, most of the people at C-SPAN have no idea that you do this. But I never talked to anybody about yeah, it. Yeah, but you work full-time on the radio station. Yeah. What's the most rewarding part of this? We're, we only have about 10 minutes, but what's the most rewarding part about this for you over the last 30 years? Our first adoption. The little kid sitting right there over your shoulder. Um, her mom brought her here. <clears throat> Said she wanted to go to the store and come back. And then never came back. <laughs> For like a year and a half. And I, we just held on to the child. <laughs> we were... We're a licensed child placing agency, which is the term. We could do that. And we were child residents, licensed by the city, so we did. The mom came back and said that she'd been arrested, and that she was pregnant again, and they wanted to find this child, and she didn't want them to have him, <laughs> then they get the child. Um, could we help her? And I said, well, I'll see if our lawyers could drive the proper paper, but if you sign the right papers, we'll get her adopted. <clears throat> and she did. And that's our first adoption. Um, <clears throat> the, I saw the woman twice in my life. Once when she dropped off the child. Another time when she came back, I called our lawyers. They were all busy. I said, oh, no, no, I can't let her go. She may never come back. What papers do we need? They all papered together. We went down to a notary public. She signed them. Are the lawyers, by the way, pro bono? Depends on what we're doing. Um, um, for the most part, no. But... Um, um, I always operate on figure out what you're going to do and then figure out how to get it done. And don't don't go the free route. Don't go the cheap route. Um, let me say this. Everything that I or we have ever done to help a child, somebody else was being paid to do that and didn't. And we did it. But you asked me one problem. My first adoption... Um, getting Ashley's brother and sister adopted. She's, would have been a, Ashley's graduated from Trinity. You mentioned her earlier. Right. Um, and when she came here, she was a baby. She had a brother and sister, or toddlers. Uh, um, getting that adoption done. We weren't the formal adoption agency for it. Somebody else was. But we did all the freaking work for it. I mean, we found the family. Uh, um, um, um. So that would be number two. And number three would be when I went to Carmen and Ashley's graduation, which was a few weeks ago at Trinity, Washington. It was the Saturday. It was like blistering hot, like 100 degrees out. Uh, um, and I just sat in the back in the lawn, and I cried like a baby the whole time. I mean, I was soaking wet with tears. To think I had taken these babies and ushered them through college. If I died then, I would have been like on my tombstone, just put, he's happy. But if I were to come up with, with, with three things, that would be it. As we close this out, what what would you say are the most negative influences on young people in this country? It, it, it's surprisingly simple. We, 
because um, I always find myself in the situation where I'm answering those kind of questions, and and there are so many stories uh, along the way, like the first time I met Catherine Graham, <laughs> who put money into this organization. Um, something I want to mention that's worth noting. <clears throat> This organization would never have existed without the help of Republicans. <laughs> Some of them kind of famous that that you would also find um, surprising. Um, but but kids are surprisingly simple. Um, um, what I learned from the group, first group of boys I worked with is is never let yourself forget that they're just kids. And there's no such thing as a bad kid. We label kids based on our perception of what we think they should be. And I've never met a kid I couldn't reach. It's just a matter of, is there enough time? Uh, um, 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 what's the investment that's, that's called for? But, but all little kids want to be parented. They want to be. Uh, um, all bigger kids are looking for structure. They can find it at home, at school. Uh, um, 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 environment. I love Will Hunt. Will hunting because Will is a genius, and the environment superseded all of that. And I see that all the time. I tell people all the time when and they're saying, well, we're, we're assessing this kid and we found this, we said that. I said, no, you didn't. Because down the street is the world's greatest child psychiatrist. And she told me, if you evaluate a child under stress, all you're evaluating is their reaction to the stress. If you get them to a place where they're comfortable and normal, then you can evaluate the child's capabilities. Other than that, all you're doing is assessing their response to the environment. We have not talked a lot about a lot of kids, but I want everybody to know if they want to see more, they can go on your website, and that is what? LittleBlueHouse.org. And there are videos on there that kids are talking through the years? Um, yes. Talking lately, during college? Not so much. Um, basically, what happened uh, when I bought the building and put the money aside to send the kids to college... When COVID hit, a lot of the programmatic stuff we did got shut down because we physically couldn't get together. I mean, uh, pre-COVID, you could come here on a Sunday and the house would be just filled with kids, just running around, talking to each other. This is what we call the girls' room. And, you, and it's filled with bears. Um, um, and you could walk in here and, 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 and Carmen would just have this bear wrapped around her. And some, uh, uh, Stephanie would be just lying on the floor. And it was like, this just filled my heart with joy just to see them. And the boys would be in the video game room uh, uh, playing video games and talking about girls. And, you know, the staff would go from one to the other. Um, we had this woman who worked here named Mary Rannigan, and I used to say that Mary, Mary was our magic pill. Um, she could just get any kid to do anything just by talking to him. She, she was warm and smart and capable, and whenever she walked in the rooms, I, I could be, Mary! And 
whatever she told a kid to do, they would do. Last question. On your busiest year, what was the total cost of the little blue house? The total, our busiest year wasn't the most expensive years. Our, our, uh, the most expensive years were the years that we were residents, where we would have um, a half dozen, six or eight babies living here at a time, because then we had 24 hour staff and we would spend 350000 But in our busier years, when we were a contractor for family services, we were a licensed adoption agency, we were a licensed mental health provider, uh, uh, um, in, in those things, that's when we had a sort of a huge client base. Uh, um, and we were very, very busy doing a lot of different things. I mean, in order to pull off in order to pull off the summer program, we had to do a whole bunch of other stuff that you wouldn't. We we would buy people groceries so that they would let their kids come here. <laughs> we would drive kids cross town because mom, when we found mom, she was living in a shelter in this neighborhood, and when she found a place to live was way over southeast, and, it, and we didn't want to lose the kids, so we would drive over there and get them and bring them back every day. I'd have college students who would show up here in the morning at 8 a.m. and go drive all over the city and pick up kids and bring them here. But that's when we are busiest. It didn't cost us the most money. When we're residents, is when it cost the most money. Carl Foster, director of the Little Blue House. 30 years. C-SPAN, 23 years. When they listen to you from now on, they they will listen to a different voice. Thank you so much for doing this. I just appreciate that you appreciate our kids and what they go through. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 